Well, 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 good morning, church. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the, the gathering of the saints, the gathering of God's people, the gathering of those who belong to him, the gathering of the followers of Jesus, the gathering of the servants of Christ, the gathering of the children of God. And why do we gather? Why do we gather? We gather in obedience to God's word, as the author of Hebrews wrote and said, do not neglect gathering together as some will do, because when we gather, we are stirred up and spurred on toward love and good deeds, which is the fruit of our clarity of the gospel. So we gather here so that we might remind one another through a multitude of experiences, conversations, song, the study of God's word, whatever it might be, that Jesus is king, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and that he is trustworthy, and we are reminded of who he is, and we are reminded of what he has done, and then in view of God's mercy to us, us, our response is to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is our worship. This is the gathering of the saints. Welcome. Welcome. We are exploring and have been exploring for many, many years now the unfolding story of God and us through his word. And the way we have been exploring it here is that we have been traveling chronologically from a historical standpoint through the unfolding story of scripture. We started a little over 17 years ago in the book of beginnings, literally named that the book of Genesis. And we have been traveling through the story of humanity in scripture. We have covered thousands of years of history as we have traveled through. And we are in the historical context of uh, the Bible now where the last of the letters are being written. We are coming to the historical context of where the scripture is being completed. So the letters that we are in currently, that we have covered recently, the one we're in now, the ones that we are entering into, these are the closing letters of scripture. These are the last words. These are the summaries of the authors of scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, all right, church, since you now have clarity of the gospel through our letters, through the whole of scripture, through the unfolding story of the Old Testament, here is the, the invitation, the call, the command, the only logical response. That's what these letters are. Second Peter that we uh, finished recently, uh, Second Timothy, uh, these spaces are the letters that are now uh, in incredible summaries, last words to the church. In view of God's mercy, respond this way. And not because you have to, but because any other way would make no sense. This is the story of the Bible in the section that we're in now. And the letter we're in right now is no exception to this. In fact, it's one of the reasons why these letters are pretty short. And Titus, the one we're in now, very short. Because the intent of these letters is not to try to unpack and describe what so many of the other letters have already done. 
I mean, Paul himself, who is writing Titus, uh, he wrote Galatians early on in his journey, uh, showing us how the gospel informs legalism. He wrote First and Second Corinthians, showing us how the gospel informs lawlessness. He wrote Thessalonians, showing us how the gospel informs suffering. Uh, he, he wrote uh, 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 Ephesians, showing us a summary of the gospel. He wrote Romans, showing us the complexity of the gospel. I mean, he has just covered a massive amount of ground inspired by the Holy Spirit. And now what he's doing in these last letters is saying, in view of that, here, church, live it out this way. Live it out this way. So in the book of Titus, this letter that Paul is writing to his disciple Titus, one of his disciples, Timothy being another, uh, he is writing to Titus, who is in Crete, an an island of Roman territory. And and Titus's task in Crete Uh, was now or is now to go to the churches that have been planted in Crete and to establish those churches for their calling into the future by first establishing leadership, eldership to lead the church, and then by informing, exhorting, encouraging the church to fix their eyes on Jesus and to live out uh, in a response to the gospel. That's what Titus is to do. And Paul is writing this letter to Titus to say, Titus, go do this, tell the church these things. And we, the church, are to pay close attention to what Paul is telling Titus to tell the church. Because we are the church. There were five of you. That's good. When I pause and I go, uh, then generally I'm only doing that when the answer is either really easy or it's Jesus. Those are your two options, right? And you'll never go wrong with Jesus. And so you can just shout out if you can, and, and guess that, and it's okay if you get it wrong. So, because we are the church. church, so we should pay close attention to this, right? So Paul began this letter, uh, if you were around, uh, with uh, an, a, a, an introduction to Titus. And he said, uh, just FYI, I'm writing this letter to you for the church, basically to accomplish this. So that those who have not come to faith or, or will come to faith. Uh, so I want this letter to be a display of the gospel so that it is a letter that will have in it what is necessary for those uh, that God have elected to come to faith. And I want this letter to have in it what is necessary for those who have come to faith to grow in the knowledge of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. And then I want that knowledge to lead to godliness, a transformed life. And I want this letter to remind those who are followers of Jesus to keep their eyes fixed on the bigger story of eternity, the hope to come, so that while they live here on this planet in this context, they are constantly reminded that they're part of a much bigger story. Otherwise, this one will feel overwhelming sometimes, right? So to come to faith, to grow in knowledge, transformed into godliness, and have our eyes fixed on the hope of our future, that's why I'm writing this letter. And then after he did that, he walked into, okay, Titus, now as you establish leadership in the church, look for people that are living their lives in response to the gospel and lives that are now according to the ways of God's kingdom, the ways of God's character, God's ways. Why? Because first and foremost, if we are followers of Jesus, belonging to the kingdom of God, we are a people now that are actually bringing the kingdom of God to planet death, the kingdom of earth, right? We actually now are to represent, to to bring to the table, to expand the kingdom of God on this planet. Jesus said when he came 
the kingdom of God is here. Remember that? He said it a multitude of times. He, wherever he showed up, they're like, when's the kingdom of God coming? And he said, the kingdom of God is here. here. Because who was there? Jesus. And then he gave us his spirit. And Jesus now resides in a new body. And that body is who? Us, the church. So the kingdom of God is where now on planet earth? Here. Here. Where you and I go as followers of Jesus, there goes the kingdom of God. So Titus is being told by Paul, tell the church that they are to live in accordance with the kingdom of God because they are part of the kingdom of God and they are now the kingdom of God come to earth. And so when you establish leaders in the church, you would certainly want those leaders to be leading the church in accordance with what you want the church to be, right? So it, it is not, and you'll see that in a second, you know that from last week, it is not that he's saying the leaders are to behave in accordance with the kingdom of God, the rest of you are off the hook. He's saying, you all, me and you, will not ultimately be able to behave in a manner that represents the kingdom of God if our leaders are not, right? So we follow them as they follow Jesus, good, good. Jesus is the right answer. As they follow Jesus, we do not follow them we follow Jesus and we follow them as they follow Jesus. I follow you as you follow Jesus, Jesus and you follow me as I follow Jesus. Jesus. I do not follow you, you do not follow me. That's what he's saying. So set up good leadership that follow Jesus. Then last week, Brady brought to us the next part and he said, Titus then says, okay, to, to, to everybody that's in the church, the church, okay, if you follow of Jesus, whatever your role might be, live your role out in accordance with what your role represents about the dynamic between God and mankind. Because what you are in your roles isn't for you or about you anymore. It's for Jesus and about Jesus. So if you are husband, you are representing what that represents about the relationship between Jesus and the church. If you are wife, you are representing that. If you are child, you are representing that. If you are parent, you are representing that. If you are master or servant, you are representing that. Those things are not the relevance. They are relevant insofar as they display the gospel for Jesus followers. If you don't follow Jesus, then they're relevant to you because it's what you're pursuing. But if you follow Jesus, they stop being your pursuit. He becomes your pursuit. And they are means by which you can show the kingdom of God to the world. You with me so far? Okay, so that's a lot, right? And if you are not feeling a tad overwhelmed by now, you are not listening. Right? Uh, overwhelmed by what elders are called to because who's called to those things? Everyone, one of you said it, I love that, loudly. How many people are called to what Titus was told to look for in elders? Everyone, because who's supposed to be representing the kingdom of God? Everyone, we are all to be these followers. So that's overwhelming. And then in our everyday lives, notice Titus is not told, tell the church, when they show up at church, please behave like Christians. But when you go out in the world, do whatever you want. It's actually the other way around. It's the other way around. When you show up here, this is the gathering where you're safe to be able to say, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time with that. I'm, I don't know what to do with that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going nuts in my head. Help me. This is when we confess our stuff. We pour our stuff out. We should be the most messy in terms of our vulnerability here so that when we go out there as husbands, wives, parents, children, friends, co-workers, masters, servants, whatever, there we can live it out because we have been stirred up here. 
And he says, don't, don't reverse that. Behave like a buffoon out there and then show up here. <laughs> don't do that. Show up here messy, get out there and live out the kingdom. And then when he gets to the end of this, we stand and go, okay. And he said a lot, right? He didn't just say, be this. He's like, be self-controlled, be godly, be holy, be all these things. And I'm like, I struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? I mean, I struggle with putting other people's needs ahead of my own. I don't know about you, but I, my needs feel pretty important to me. And when other people violate my needs, that feels pretty violating to me. And then I sort of go, go yeah, I, I'm all for your needs once my needs are met. But trying to meet your needs while my needs aren't being met, especially if you're not the one meeting them, that ain't going to go so well. And then the Bible says, think of others' needs ahead of yourself. And I'm like, oh, I'm already lost. And that's one category of this overwhelming reality. So the question becomes, okay, God, I, I get it. Paul told Titus to tell us, the church, that this is our reality, to live out the kingdom of God. But I struggle. I live with other humans and they're not nice. And I struggle to do this. How am I ever going to do this? Where is this going to come from? You kind of get to that point where you feel like you're pulling out the thing and there's a checklist of things to do now. He just went through it. Elders first and then everybody else. Okay, the godliness and, and self-control. Oh my gosh, did I miss one? And Paul then suddenly does what Paul always does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just at the point where you think what God is saying is, get the list out, uh, make a list, and go do these things to show me that you're faithful. He goes, no, 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 whoa, whoa, that would be self-righteousness. That would be a work you can't do anyway. In fact, anytime you're going to live out the values of the kingdom of God, you should live them out in response to something profound. It should be a response of worship and awe, not a work to present to God. And that's what Paul's about to do. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus, which is right after the books of First and Second Timothy. I only say that because Titus is so short, you'll be flipping forever. But when you get to Timothy, you go, oh, it's right after this. So uh, Titus uh, chapter 2. Uh, verse 11 is where we are jumping back in and where Brady left off last week. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Okay, so that sentence starts with the word for, for the grace of God has appeared. Whenever you see a word like this, for, therefore, because, what does that word do? It connects, it connects what is about to come, the thought that is about to be unpacked to the one that was previously given so that you and I are not confused into believing that we are moving into a new thought that is not connected to the previous thought. That happens lots of times in a conversation or a paragraph. Here's thought number one, moving on to thought number two, moving on to thought number three. But if you put a for or therefore or because, you are saying this thought is able or real or true or whatever you might say because of this reason and that's the sentence we're in right now everything I've just said Titus to tell the church that elders should be and people should be it is because grace has what appeared grace has appeared so we should then be a people that get super curious we're like ooh. Grace has appeared. What does that mean? Now you might say, oh, come on, Renault. That's silly. We know what that means. It's going to be about Jesus, isn't it? 
Yes, I know you know that. Yes, I know I know that. But one of the big things we need to learn as followers of Jesus is to always enter scripture as though in some ways we are reading it for the very first time so that our curiosity is not diminished by our already knowledge. Uh, Grace has appeared. Yep, check that box. Of course, that's Jesus. I want to read this and go, okay, for the grace of God has appeared. What does that mean? What is the grace of God that has appeared? What does it mean that it's appeared? Is it a force? Is it a thing that he sent? Is it like something is poured over us? What does it mean? I need to start with this great curiosity. The reason Paul says to Timothy to tell us that we're going to be able to live out the lives we've just been instructed to live. In fact, the reason we would even do it is because the grace of God has appeared. What does that mean? Let's go on and see. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, wow. So this grace that has appeared is affecting some things, right? And remember, because of the word for, it is not just that next sentence, for grace has appeared, but everything that's to come now helps us understand our motivation and our ability, our competency to be able to do what we've been called to do. It's coming out of this thing that is the grace of God appeared. And the grace of God that appeared has done the following things according to scripture. Number one, it has brought salvation for us all. It has brought salvation. It has saved us. Which means that at one point we were not saved, needing to be saved. You need to catch all of that. It didn't say it saved those that needed saving and those that didn't need saving. It's useless. It said it's it's salvation for who? For all. So how many needed saving? All. And this grace that has appeared has saved us. Which means that we are something other than what we once were. And he's saying, the reason I can call you into living out the values of the kingdom of God, despite the struggle, and encourage you to do it, and expect you to progressively move into it, is because you are something you were not before. You are saved. And we know that being saved uh, in God's grace means that we are now children of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. When? Now. Now, representing that kingdom on this planet. And so the fact that we're saved is the first reason that he would say, you belong to God and his kingdom. Would it make any sense for you not to pursue living out his ways, his kingdom, his story? Would it make any sense? No. He's just trying to get to the, like, this isn't going to make any sense. It's not going to make any sense. And then he says this, and wait for it. Grace that has appeared didn't only save us, changing who we were to who we are now, but it did something else. What else did it do? It's training us in some things. This is fascinating that this grace that has appeared has a component to it that it is actually training us. 
And this word of training, you don't use the word training when you are self-generating clarities, right? Where you're like, oh, I just figured something out as I was thinking. You're not being trained. When you're being trained, it is when you are taking a competency or a clarity from some other person who is giving it to you. You're reading a book somebody wrote. You're in a classroom with a teacher or professor. You have a mentor. You have a rabbi. You have a teacher. You have whatever it is. You are learning from another. You are an intern. Uh, You are an apprentice. You have somebody that is giving you mastery of something that you do not currently have. We use the word you are being trained, right? So this grace that has appeared, it has brought our salvation And it is giving us training. And the training it's giving us is in what? It says it right there. It says, training us in uh, to renounce ungodliness. In other words, to live godly and worldly passions, to renounce those, not to pursue the passions of this world, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If you were here last week, you will remember that Brady gave an incredible illustration about the dynamic between God making us his children, uh, citizens of the kingdom, children of God, followers of Jesus, and progressively making us more like him. And Brady shared that as a husband, he became a husband the day he married his wife. He was all husband the next day as much as he is all husband now. He was no more a husband today, years later, than he was the day after he got married. Are you with me? But he behaves like a husband now in so many ways that the day after he got married, he didn't. Because the day before he got married, he was not a husband. He was a single dude. And the day after he got married, he still behaved like a single dude. But now, years later, after much exhortation from his wife and many others, he has become more like a husband than he once was. But is he any more a husband today than he was the day after he got married? No. And what this is telling us is that this grace that has appeared, that is the reason that we're going to be able to live as kingdom citizens of God's kingdom, has done two things and is doing the second thing. It has made us something and it is transforming us into something simultaneously. This should be very encouraging to us that the grace that has appeared didn't just make us something and then say, now go behave that way. It both made us something, saving us, and is forming us into something that represents what we already are. We are being trained by this grace that has appeared. What becomes evident now, again, if you read this as though you're reading the first time, is that this grace that has appeared, it seems, is not a force or a pouring out of something. It might be a person. Because you don't use the word training unless you're talking about learning from another. So now we start going, is this a person? Is God's grace that has appeared a person? Then we go, let's go, let's go see, watch. But before we get there, look what it says. Upright and godly lives in the present age. This training that's taking place to train us to live out the values that is of this kingdom because we are now saved into this kingdom is for which age? 
this one. There is an age to come. And this is not saying you are being trained up in godliness for the age to come. It's not saying that. You see, if it was saying that, it would be saying no need to try and press into living like God's kingdom now. The training that's happening now is preparing you to live like God's kingdom then. But he's not saying that because in fact, what we learn from the rest of scripture that will come, including Revelation, is that in God's kingdom that is to come, is there any suffering, any struggle, any death, any darkness, any sin, anything that would cause us to need to be trained or transformed ongoingly? No. So when we get there, we will not need this sentence any longer. This training for godliness is for which age? this one. And so we need to pay attention to the fact that Paul is telling Titus to tell the church the call to live out the values of God's kingdom and his character and his ways is to do now. When you're in the age to come, you won't need to do them because you just will because that's what that kingdom is. But you're in another kingdom now and you're going to wrestle with this kingdom's values and God's kingdom's values and you get to choose which one you step into now because you are saved and because you have this grace to look to for your training. And it is for this age. And then he says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's now mirroring how he started this letter. I'm writing this letter so people can come to know, have salvation, grow in knowledge to live transformed lives of godliness and have their eyes fixed on the future hope. He just repeated that here. And so he's literally saying, how should we live? With our eyes fixed on the fact that we are saved, so that we know what kingdom we belong to, then look to the grace that is training us so that we would live out the values of God and keep our eyes fixed on that kingdom in our future because that's who we are and where we're headed so that this kingdom does not overwhelm us. That's how we are to live. Now, he then says, this Jesus who is going to return and we wait for his appearing, he is the one, look at verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There it is. Paul now connects grace and Jesus together. Grace did what? Saved or redeemed us and is teaching, training, training us, right? Come on, people. Come on, people, okay? And Jesus, who has come, came to redeem us or save us and is purifying us or training us. Oh, the grace that has appeared is Jesus. And he has saved us and redeemed us. And he is purifying us, training us. So we have every reason to know that the competency, the power and the reality that we need to be able to live out the overwhelming realities of chapter two as elders and others and pursuit of that is because Jesus is enough. Jesus has done the work. Jesus is doing the work. So we participate in it because we are participating with one whose promise is that he's getting it done. And so we're like, I'm in. I'm in. I want to live like your kingdom and I'm going to trust you. And it is Jesus who we look to then to start saying, okay, the way we're going to live out the values of God's kingdom is to fix our eyes on 
Jesus and keep close to him. But then he says something very, very interesting. He says, he gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So it's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Uh, hear this passage saying, when Jesus redeemed us, he redeemed us from what? All lawlessness. So kind of, and it makes sense in this passage because you're talking about living godly and not ungodly lives, right? Uh, uh, lawful, not unlawful lives, right? But now he uses the word save. What did he save us from in both salvation and what is he saving us from in purifying or training us? Lawlessness. Why would he say lawlessness? Because it feels like you're saving me from doing the wrong thing. Here's why. Because we have learned in Scripture, in the writings of the New Testament, and certainly in the book of Titus, that when we are doing something that is God's way versus our way, or our way versus God's way, right and wrong, holy or sinful, it is not a matter of right and wrong. It is a matter of life and death. Lawfulness, the ways of God's kingdom, bring about Life, light, and freedom. Lawlessness, our way, brings about death, darkness, and bondage. That is a truth that will stand at all times. Never will lawlessness fruitful, be fruitful in bringing life, light, and freedom. Lawlessness of any kind will always bring about death. And lawfulness of any kind will always bring about life if the lawfulness is the lawfulness that comes from God's word and God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, is there any death? Is there any darkness? Any bondage? Any suffering? Any pain? Any of that? No, we know that. We know that from scripture. Which means that anything and everything that is done in God's kingdom does not produce death, darkness, or bondage. Because if it did, then guess what would be in God's kingdom? death, darkness, and bondage. But on our planet, numbers of things we do produce death, darkness, and bondage. And other things we do produce life, light, and freedom. And what God is saying is, I want you to do the things that are my way and the way of my kingdom because they will produce what? Life. life. And I do not want you to do things that are your way and of your kingdom because they produce death. So when it says, this Savior Jesus saved us from all lawlessness, you may as well fill that word in with this, saved us from all death. He is not saving us to be a behaving people. He does not need a behaving people. He did not die so that we will behave ourselves. He died so we won't die. He died so we will live. And he's trying to save us from death, not from wrongness. Wrongness is nothing. The problem with wrongness is it produces death. God does not watch us and he's like, I'm so disappointed you're not following the rules. God looks at us and says, you are dabbling in death. I don't want that for you. Come home to lawfulness. Living rightly is what saves us. And lawlessness is crazy because it produces two versions of death. Lawlessness that is part of our nature because we are born into the human nature produces eternal death. And did he save us from that? Yes, by taking our sin onto himself and giving us his righteousness. So we have eternal life and what was giving us eternal death was lawlessness as a nature. So he saved us from eternal death, giving us eternal life by saving us from the nature of lawlessness in us. 
And now, as we have the choice to behave lawfully or lawlessly, God's kingdom, our kingdom, when we, pre- when we live lawfully, if we know the reason for grace has appeared, then we are living in things that will produce life. life. Is that what God wants for you? Yes. Is that what I want for you? Yes. Is that what you should want for me? Yes. yes. And if I do stupid stuff, foolish stuff, Stuff that is not lawful. And I'm like, "Eh, it says it in there, but that's dumb. This feels so good. It's going to produce every time in every way at some point. Death. death. Do you start catching the urgency here? Where, Where Paul's telling Titus, tell the church. Tell the church. They belong to a new kingdom now of life. They are empowered by that kingdom and his king, the spirit of God. And they are given instruction on how that kingdom functions to live it out on this kingdom. They are God's kingdom come on earth and they can go into this planet of darkness, live out in their dailiness the things of God and they will bring life to where there is death. Or they can ignore all of this, live like this kingdom and keep being producers of death death, and keep being recipients of death. death. Thank God, not eternal death, because Jesus saved us from that. And that's a work he did, and it's permanent. But do you want to live the rest of your life out on this planet, dabbling in things that will produce for you and those you love around you death? Do you see why I say it's not about do it right because Jesus died for you. You owe it to him. It's don't be an idiot. Did I say that out loud? So sorry about that. Sorry, not sorry. And look at this to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this is interesting. As we find ourselves captivated by this grace that has appeared Jesus, who has saved us from death eternally and given us life eternally by saving us from our nature of lawlessness and is saving us from death temporarily by purifying us or training us in godliness, saved us from eternal death, is saving us from daily temporal death. What a savior! As we think on that, remember that, see that, then we become a people that are going to become zealous for what? Good works, life, good works, because good works are life, and life is good works. It's a thing of the kingdom. We're going to become zealous for that. We're going to want to do what's right, not because it's right, but because it's life. And because our King and our Savior has saved us from the stupidity of doing what is wrong doesn't mean you and I will always do what's right. It now just simply means when we do what's wrong, we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, idiot. You, I mean, you knew. And, and now look. Or, and then God can say, thankfully, thankfully, I anticipated your struggle and your foolishness. So my saving you for eternal life has no impact or your foolishness, your rebellion has no impact on my saving you eternally. That, we sang about that today, is the greatest grace of God. That even when I fail him in my day, he will never fail me in holding my salvation forever for me. But today, if I choose my way versus God's way, I just need to know it's going to produce some version of temporal death in some way, either now or in the future. It always does. And that's what Paul is trying to say. We want to be zealous for good works. Good works. Verse 13, declare these things 
exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul ends this to Titus, this little section with this. Tell the church loudly. Tell them all the time. Uh, declare it to them. Shout it to them. Exhort them. Exhortation or exhorting. If you go to the dictionary, it literally means, the, in, in the dictionary it says this. It says to urge, to admonish urgently or urgent advice. What word did you hear in every one of those things? Urgent, urgent. Paul is saying, this is such a big deal, this clarity of the gospel and who we are and what we are to do, that you ought to urge one another how often? All the time. Declare it, shout it. Hey, do you remember who Jesus is? Hey, do you remember what he's done? Hey, do you remember who you are? Hey, do you remember who we belong to now? Hey, do you remember the kingdom of God is life? Hey, do you remember the kingdom of planet earth is death? Hey, do you remember God's way is life? Hey, do you remember our way is death? Come on now, people. That's what he says to do. Declare, declare, declare. Urge, urge, urge. Exhort, exhort, exhort. It's crazy in scripture. The word exhort um, actually comes from a Greek word, parakaleo. The Spirit of God is actually called, at different points, the Spirit of parakaleo, or parakaleo, the God of all comfort. Have you ever heard that, the God of all comfort? Parakaleo. But parakaleo in the Greek is an interesting word because it has a multitude of meanings that are all connected. Comfort is one of its meanings. Guess what another meaning is? To console, to help, to exhort to strengthen, uh, to be strengthened by another person. The word exhort, the Greek word is parakaleo, as is the Greek word for comfort. God is the God of comfort. God is the God of exhortation. And they are the same thing. Why? Because when we urge one another toward God's ways, we comfort one another. You catch that? Will you be comforted when life is the fruit of your choices? Will you be comforted when light is the fruit of your choices? Will you be comforted when freedom is the fruit of your choices? So when I exhort you to the ways of God, I exhort you to comfort. And so Paul says this to Timothy, I mean to Titus, and then Titus to the church. Titus, tell them loudly. Tell them all the time. Tell them with urgency. Exhort them. In fact, in fact, if exhortation doesn't work, rebuke them. The rebuking is when you or I are choosing our way. We ought to run to each other when we are seeing that foolishness and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you crazy? I don't, I don't care what's right. No, I don't forget right. Do you care about death? That's what we ought. I, I ought to see you and you ought to see me doing things that are not God's way and coming with great concern, uh, a sense of like, I want to I save you from death. That is not judgment, that is love. And we ought to be a church. It's not running to each other like, I can't believe you did that. That's stupid, that's wrong. God's so disappointed. It's like, man, please, I beg you, do it God's way. Why? Because it's life. And so Paul says to Titus, tell the church with all authority, with all urgency, with all zeal to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, and to do it his way. Because, why? Grace has appeared, saved us and redeemed us and is training us and purifying us. We have 
every reason to live God's way. When Jesus came and he trained us by living his life on this planet, that's what this means, grace appeared, saved us, and trained us by literally, we watched Jesus and we're like, look, do it that way. Jesus then said this at the end of his life. He told his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16 uh, in that conversation that happens through those three chapters. I have not taught you everything you need to know. We don't have enough time. I've got to go. But I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you a helper. My spirit, the spirit of God. And my helper, my spirit, your helper, is going to come and become your rabbi and teach you the things I have not yet taught you. And he will be with you when? Always Always teaching you when? always. And then as Jesus left the planet and the spirit of God came into his people, he inspired first and foremost people to write instructions down. Everything in the New Testament that is post Jesus's ascension is the spirit of God finishing the job of the information we need to know what it is to be a child of the kingdom of God and to live it out on this planet. And then, not only is he going to show us and teach us by showing us in his word, but he is going to reside in us and empower us to live it out. You and I have everything we need to know to live the lives we are called to live in the scripture. We don't know everything yet. That would be way too many books to ever read. But we know everything we need to know to live out that which God wants us to live out as his people. And we have the spirit of God, so we have every bit of power and competency to do it but we also have the choice to ignore it. And you will choose that sometimes, as will I. And when we do, we have the grace of God that has saved us forever, but we're also idiots. And he's simply saying, look, I've got you, I've saved you, you're my kid, that's never gonna change, but don't be a fool, don't be a fool, do it my way. Because when you do, you have life, you bring life, And you become what I've made you to be, a carrier of my kingdom into the world. That's why Jesus said, when he was talking about this thing he's going to start called the church. It's like, I'm 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 going to create my church. And my church is going to go out into the darkness. And what? The gates of hell itself shall not prevail against the coming of my kingdom. And my kingdom will come now through my body, the church. Go, kingdom of God, and invade the darkness until it is no more. This is the story we're part of. And he's like, you want in? You're in. Do it. How? By living godly lives in your daily life and trusting Jesus. So I leave you with this. I leave you with this. How on earth then am I going to, because tomorrow's another day, I got to wake up. Where do I start? Here's a small starting point, just a small starting point, because to keep ourselves in the day, living out God's way versus ours, it's got to start with fixing our eyes on Jesus, because it's not about how much you can muster up your will. It's about how much you remember who Jesus is and what he's done. And in view of his grace and mercy, you respond with worship, your life of godliness. How do we do that? Well, the easiest, closest, fastest starting point is take God's word wherever it describes who Jesus is or who we are because of Jesus and have it at your fingertips all the time. How do you do that? How do you have this at your fingertips when you don't have this in your hand? You memorize it. Oh, no. I'm bad at memorization. 
Death, death waits for you each day to tempt you. How serious is that? Memorize some stuff so that you have it. When you wake up in the morning, you should start right out in the day saying, okay, Romans 12, one through three. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, uh, let me present myself a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is my spiritual act of worship. I'm not going to conform today to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I will know the will of God, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. All right, Renault, let's do this. You got to have that, or you got to have Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 in your head. And go this, remember what he said? Folks, now that you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all the other believers that have gone before you out of Hebrews 11 and onward, let us cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us today. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the cross for crying out loud. I put the crying out loud part in there. Who endured the cross scorning its shame and now sits at the right hand of God. What did his servitude, his righteousness, his godliness, his sacrifice produce? Life! Be like him. Be like him. You ought to have Philippians 2 in your head. Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not choose equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, making himself a servant even unto death, so that you might be saved. Be like him. There's so many in Scripture you can go to. And just grab little nuggets, memorize them, so that in your day, as you are tempted, stirred, I'm going to do it my way, you quickly go, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. In view of God's mercy. Oh, that's right. Memorize this. Luke chapter 9. If you're going to follow me, then take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to preserve your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. Do good works even when they are costly. Or perhaps maybe you want to grab this one where God also said, listen, well, Paul said through the spirit of God, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I do not live for myself. I live for him. These ought to be things that are available to you 24 seven. Memorize some of them. And then repeat them, meditate on them, fix them. And when you walk into life, remember who Jesus is. Remember what he's done and remember who you are. And remember this, he saved you from lawlessness. In other words, he saved you from death. And he saves you today from lawlessness through his word and his spirit because he wants to save you today from death. Do it God's way. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's exhortation to Titus so that Titus would exhort the church and we are the church. church, so we are exhorting each other. And since Paul told Titus to be urgent about it and declare it, consider me loud on this one because this one matters. We are the people of God. Let's live like it and trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for all the ways in which you have consistently revealed yourself 
through Old and New Testament alike, how you've consistently made things so abundantly simple and clear to us, even though they are hard and difficult to do. And then that you have empowered us by your spirit, with your word, and your life on this planet by appearing and living life, showing us the way, training us by the very life you lived, what it looks like to live as people of your kingdom, producing life, light, and freedom instead of death, darkness, and bondage. Help us now as your people to spend our days fixing our eyes on you, remembering who you are, what you've done for us, and who we are because of that. And remind us each day that when we choose your way, we choose life, not rightness. And when we choose our way, we choose death, not wrongness. Your concern for us is not doing what is right or what is wrong. Your concern for us is doing what is life or what is death. Thank you for being concerned. Thank you for being urgent in exhorting us to do what's right. Thank you for saving us from lawlessness. May our righteousness never be self-righteousness generated as a means to prove something to you, but just a response of worship generated because we hear you and we are in awe of your saving us and so we want to live like you and for you. Show us the way, God, in our dailiness to become like the elders and people in chapter two of the book of Titus so that we might be the church you've called us to be. Charge the gates of hell and see them fall as light invades darkness. Freedom invades bondage and life invades death. And that we get to be part of that is ridiculous and we're grateful. We love you, Jesus. Amen.